This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark. I'm Muak Paganapake Pagan, and I'm speaking today to AJ Finn. His debut novel, The Woman in the Window, is now in bookstores, and it is a clever and pacey and thrilling work of literary noir. All right, AJ, uh, before we begin, could I get you to introduce yourself and what you do and the like? Yes, yes. My name is AJ Finn. I am the author of The Woman in the Window, which is a thriller being published around the world in 2018. And there is a film adaptation underway at Fox. Fantastic. AJ, uh, for those who don't know, uh, do you... uh, do you have an elevator pitch for The Woman in the Window? Can you I tell do. people what it's about? I do. It's uh, it's rear window for the 21st century. An agoraphobic woman, once a respected child psychologist, is now housebound and spends her days watching old movies and drinking wine and spying on her neighbors. And one day, she notices the arrival of a new family in a house across the way. And after getting to know them a bit, she witnesses one evening something that she should not witness. Or does she? Having convinced herself that she's being witness to a, a crime, uh, our heroine struggles to unravel the mystery, but there's no evidence that a crime actually occurred. You know, it didn't take more than three pages of the book for me to realize that I was reading a new take on Real Window. Oh, I good. mean, <laughs> almost almost immediately there was this sense of Hitchcockian flair from your opening chapter when she's spying on the woman having an affair and her husband yep. is walking up the street and up the stairs. Yep. So, So talk to me about your inspirations. I mean, Hitchcock is a clear one, but also... There was a movie called The Woman in the Window back in the day. I think it was in the 50s? It was in the 40s. It was 1944. It was directed by Fritz Lang. Believe it or not, although I'm, I'm pretty well-versed in classic cinema, I was not familiar with this particular film. It was a happy coincidence, that uh, it, it, <laughs> a very happy coincidence, that it shares the title with my book. I grew up down the block from an art house cinema, and I wasn't a very popular high school student. So every weekend during my teen years, I would camp out at this art house where the managers routinely hosted film noir retrospectives and classic movie nights and Hitchcock marathons. And I absolutely gorged myself on it. Hitchcock in particular struck a chord largely because of the style and urgency and wit of his movies, so many films today, and I say this as an avowed fan of contemporary cinema as well as classic cinema, so many films today seem to have rushed through production without much care or craft. They appear to have been edited in a blender. The performances don't seem especially inhabited or thoughtful. The dialogue is functional but perfunctory. If you look at some of these classics, they're classics for a reason. The dialogue is routinely crisp and memorable. The camera shots are, are carefully orchestrated. The performances are inimitable. And Hitchcock, to me, more than anyone, had fun with movie making. He's most noted, of course, for Psycho and Vertigo, which are actually his two most humorless movies. Every other film, or almost every other film, is, uh, is leavened with, with some, some wit, some merriment. And actually, you, you might have a view on this, Uma, but uh, I, I, would, I would argue that Hitchcock is not strictly representative of film noir, but actually they're, they're two separate, if related, strains. Noir is, is very much saturated with doom, 
when you meet a noir protagonist, you know things are probably not going to end up too well for him, whether it's uh, whether it's in Out of the Past or or even Citizen Kane, which which has influences of noir. Uh, most of Hitchcock's films feature actors like James Stewart or Cary Grant. There's a there's a fundamental funniness to them, uh, with the exceptions again of, of Psycho and Vertigo and a handful of others. Uh, so 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 whilst the book is influenced by noirs, by by these moody melodramas and suspense thrillers, its its primary influence was Hitchcock. Oh, you're absolutely right. I think. I think the thing that people often miss or forget about is that yes. Hitchcock is incredibly mainstream in his execution. And I think absolutely. that's why his yes. movies were so popular and so accepted by the mass audience. So I think you're absolutely right. So that being said, I have I have a dirty confession. <laughs> Let me hear it. <laughs> the first time I saw Rear Window, yes. it wasn't the original. It was that Christopher Reeves remake. Ah, you saw the Christopher Reeves remake, which he directed, I think. I did, I did, and it was after his accident as well. Yes, I remember. Uh-huh. I was a huge Reeves fan because of Superman, and I loved it so much that it led me to more yeah. Hitchcock. Yeah. I mean, I'd seen Hitchcock, but only Psycho and Vertigo, because that's sure. what everyone watches. And I think I'd seen Rope as well, which is a pretty okay. weird <laughs> entry point to Hitchcock. But, but what's great about your book is that by switching protagonists, by having a female protagonist, it actually changes yep. the dynamic of the story, especially given how we treat women and how we question them yep. constantly and the term hysteria and its origins. Um, yes. Was that entirely intentional as well to add this layer of tension? Uh, yes, actually, it was. It occurred to me as I brainstormed ideas for a thriller in the Hitchcock vein that uh, I was hard-pressed to point to a film directed by Alfred Hitchcock that featured a female protagonist and an and unrivaled female protagonist. And there aren't any, really. The, the, the women are sometimes more than window dressing. Oftentimes they are merely window dressing. But even if you give someone like Grace Kelly a good role or, or Ingrid Bergman in Notorious a good role, they are only as important as the men alongside them, if, if not less important. The female protagonists are absolutely insane and wonderful in Vertigo. And they often steal the movie from Stuart. Yep, they do. Yep, you're right. And, and that's the case, actually, with Janet Lee in Psycho. But uh, she, she is the one Hitchcock heroine to whom you're introduced at the beginning of the film and whom you expect to find yourself rooting for, even though she is a criminal. But what does he do? Midway through the picture, he kills her <laughs> off. There's Teresa Wright in Shadow of a Doubt, but uh, you know the, the character played by Joseph Cotton, her uncle, is pretty much as important, and he got star billing. I wanted to create a, a plot in which the only protagonist was a woman, and I was keen to give the book the title The Woman in the Window and not The Girl Something or Other. One of the things I like about my book, if I may be so bold, is that the heroine, although a mess, is a mess of her own making. So often in literature, particularly genre literature, and not always, but so often, the female protagonists are preoccupied with men, or they rely upon men, or they otherwise orbit men. And, and to my mind, this isn't very realistic, at least not judging by the women I know. I think this is one of the reasons that uh, Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl, with its character Amy Dunn, and Lisbeth Salander in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo made such an impact. They were more than a match for the men in their lives, as are most women. 
And whilst my heroine, Anna Fox, is not as crusading as Salander or as controlling as Amy Dunn, she is no damsel in distress. Throughout the course of this novel, she identifies a mystery, does her best to unravel it, and confronts an antagonist, all without the help of a man, or indeed without the help of anyone. And, uh, and the, the girl phenomenon, with the exception of Gone Girl, and I, I find that title sort of bristles with irony, I love it, uh, and a few other books, is, is to me a bit reductive. If you are 18 years of age or older and you are a female, you are legally, and in most cases biologically, a woman. <laughs> yes, to call you, you a girl seems to me reductive and infantilizing. This, this character in my book is 38, going on 39 years old. She is a grown-up. She is a woman, and that's a great thing to be. And also, I love your title because it immediately invokes that sense of Noah. Whether you are familiar with the art form or not, those mm. combination of words should instill that imagery in your brain so you know what you're getting yourself into. Yes, I agree. And it, it, I, I, gosh, I'm just complimenting myself left and right here. I too like the title, <laughs> in, in part because it, it's both solid and slippery. I got these two nouns, woman, window, hard to mistake those. But as you read the book, you realize you're not actually sure which woman and which window we're referring to in the title. The other, the other interesting thing about your novel, of course, is the structure you decided to use because a novel like this and the story you want to tell has to be absolutely pacey. And because of that, you seem yep. to have structured incredibly short chapters that work yes. well. Because as I'm reading, oh, I want so. to know what happens next, and I want to know it now. Yep. So I've spent, uh, I've spent 10 of the past 12 years working in book publishing as an editor. Prior to that, I was a doctoral student at Oxford, where my dissertation focused on detective fiction. And prior to that, I was a kid who grew up reading Agatha Christie and later graduated to Patricia Highsmith. So crime fiction has been my life story. I've, I've led a life of crime, if you will. <laughs> and uh, much, as, much as I love authors like Henry James uh, and, and Dickens, I do feel a bit deflated when I turn the page and I see block upon block of text or when I riffle through the pages to see how many chapters I've got to go and I find that there are only three chapters, but they're about 120 pages. What James Patterson does really well is sustain momentum. And he does this by chopping his narrative into bite-sized chapters. As you said just now, very astutely, I think, you get this, uh, you get this notion that you can put the book down after just one more, just one more, just one more chapter. It's what the British call Moorish, and that's what I, I try to do. You, you say that, but of course, given that the chapters are so short, I just keep going. Just one more, just one more. It's another three pages. Yeah. And then it's three in the morning <laughs> and I haven't had any sleep. So thank you very much, AJ. Gotcha. <laughs> hey, talk to me about the movie rights. And because that's a because that's another beast altogether, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, the, the film adaptation. Yes, it is. So you've put this thing out there as an author. You've done yep. your work. And you're like, all right, it's out there for the audience to take in. And I'm really curious when a when a when the when the adaptation rights are sold almost immediately with the book, and oftentimes yeah. the movie comes out very soon after the book. I mean, even if it's a year after the book, as opposed to five years uh -huh. or eight years, um, it does create this weird dichotomy between the people who watch the movie and the people who read the book. Yeah, that's that's a, that's an excellent point. In 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 my case. We submitted the book to publishers, and 
enjoyed a very rapid response. I felt enormously gratified by this. Incidentally, we submitted the book under a pseudonym, uh, A.J. Finn, because I work in publishing, as noted, and I did not want anyone to offer on or more likely not offer on the book because they knew who I was. Right. So we, we created this nom de plume, and we always intended to publish the book pseudonymously, which is exactly what we're doing. So out with the manuscript, and editors began to tender offers, at which point we, we outed me so that they knew what they would be getting into. But before we could close any book deals around the world, and by this point we've sold the, the book in 38 territories, which we think makes it the most widely sold debut novel ever, before we closed a single one of those deals, Fox approached us and uh, made a, an offer for the film rights. And I'll never forget where I was when this happened. I was returning from holiday in, in Palm Springs, California, and I found myself in the lounge at LAX at the airport, and my agent rang, and she said, well, I know we said we weren't going to entertain any overtures from Hollywood until we closed at least a couple of book deals, but, right? but uh, Fox won't go away. And uh, they've tendered what, what, what they call an exploding offer. I said, oh my gosh, that sounds so dramatic. What is that? And she said, oh, it's, it's basically an offer that you have to accept or reject on the phone. Right now, I'm going to give you their offer and you say, yes, I want it or no, I don't. I said, all right, well, what's the offer? And she said, it's a million dollars. Do you want it? And I, <laughs> <laughs> what would you say? You know, I, I, I replied, yeah, let me think. I, I will take it. And, uh, <laughs> and we hung up and I wanted to tell someone about this, but I was virtually alone in the terminal except for this lovely Japanese family right next to me, a father, mother, and child. And so I just turned to them and smiled and gave them the thumbs up and blessed them, Uma. They all turned and smiled and gave me the thumbs up right back. It was very sweet. <laughs> they never call, they never write, but we have that moment. In any event, uh, Fox swiftly attached a producer, a fellow named Scott Rudin, who's a oh, great yes, visionary. He won an Oscar for, yeah, No Country for Old Men. He did Social Network, Grand Budapest Hotel, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, The oh, Hours. So basically the all you favorite. need now is David Fincher attached to this movie. <laughs> you know, amazing as that would be, having directed Gone Girl, I suspect he might be out of this particular game. He also did a not dissimilar project called Panic Room. That's right. Which is, uh, yeah. So he's probably trod this terrain before, but he would have been amazing. In any event, Rudin then swiftly attached a, a, a screenwriter, a playwright named Tracy Letts, who won a Pulitzer and a Tony for his play August Joseph County. So these, these extraordinary individuals, these great talents are involved, and I don't feel remotely precious about my book. Frankly, they can, they can only improve it, people of that caliber. Fox are very keen to get the film out quickly. Uh, this, is a, this is a big priority for them. That's why they splashed so much cash out from the get-go. And uh, if, if all goes according to plan, the book will be out, sorry, the film will be out within a, within a year of the book's publication. And as an author, I think I'm okay with that, in part because it's, it's, it's great for the book. It, it spurs more sales. It boosts its profile. It's, it's true, and I think this is what you were gesturing towards uh, very accurately. It's true that the movie will assume a position of primacy in, in many people's minds. More people will watch the movie than will have read the book. That's the case with virtually any film adaptation. Yeah. Uh, and. Again, I think I'm okay with that, mostly because I've, I've got such faith in the individuals involved and because I myself am quite, am quite curious to, to see what they do with this project. 
but also it feels like you don't think of film as any less than literature. And I think that's also the problem with a lot of people who make this assumption mm. that somehow something literary is prime and then the movie is secondary. And I always look, I always look at film as something supplementary as opposed to secondary. I, yes, yes. I, I, what do I think about that? Yes, I'm inclined to agree. I do feel that if done properly, a film can enhance one's experience of a book. Uh, as a recent example, I'd cite this superb film that's just been released in America called Call Me By Your Name. It's a coming-of-age romance made in Italy, and but, but featuring American actors. This is based on a book that was published 10 years ago, a book I very much enjoyed. The film is something of a different beast, largely faithful, but it finds new tonal shifts in the story. And I found it overwhelmingly moving and it renewed and enriched my appreciation of the book because my book is, as you say, cinematic because it is it traffics so heavily in cinema because there are 43 or 44 films name checked in the book. Most of them Hitchcock films and film noir. I feel it will probably lend itself pretty readily to the screen. And if audiences prefer to appreciate the story that way, good for them. I'm glad the story is getting getting an audience one way or the other. What is our fascination with this sort of story? Because we're obsessed with it. There are so many shows on TV. Uh, the mystery thriller genre yep. sells out all the time in bookshops. Yep. What is it about it? I mean, do we do we enjoy the mystery or do we just enjoy the darker side of voyeurism and murder and human nature? <laughs> it probably varies from case to case and person to person. As, as a loose rule, and this is this is a an inquiry that I pondered at length when I was a graduate student researching detective fiction. As a loose rule, I'd say that the primary appeal of detective fiction, of suspense thrillers, is and this sounds kind of pretentious, but remember, I was a grad student at the time, and I, I stand by this. <laughs> the primary appeal is the reinforcement of order. These stories satisfy because ultimately justice is upheld or restored. The wicked are punished and the guilty are, uh, sorry, the, the virtuous are rewarded. And that, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a commonplace, that's a trope, that's an old standard in everything from Mallory stories of King Arthur through to Puck Finn to most contemporary crime thrillers because because this this particular formula is not specific to crime thrillers but but uh, this genre does show it does shine a remarkably harsh and bright spotlight on it. We read Sherlock Holmes in part because he's such great company and in part because we we thrill to his detective work and deductive ingenuity, but. Also, because ultimately we know he's going to win and the powers of justice will prevail. And that is reassuring to us on some on some primal level. Now, this isn't to say that all crime thrillers operate on those principles. If you read Patricia Highsmith's book, uh, books, particularly those featuring Tom Ripley, such as the talented Mr. Ripley, he's a bad guy. He is transgressive. And yet we find ourselves rooting for him. Ruth Rendell often did this in her books. Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl features two protagonists, neither one of them particularly good people, neither one especially likable. And yet at the end, without spoiling anything, I, I, well, I shouldn't spoil anything, but I'd say 
Neither one of them suffers over much, or at least one doesn't. So I, that's that. I think is the the key to the enduring and central appeal of of this genre, which, as you point out, dominates our our media consumption. It dominates bestseller lists. It dominates broadcast ratings. We like to see order restored. And and what about the voyeur? Because that's infinitely appealing. I mean, sure, we're voyeuristic yep. by nature because we enjoy peering into other lives through movies and literature and television and all of our media and everything we consume, even the news. But there is something, yes. there's something even more appealing about peering into other lives gone wrong. Yes. And, and I'm just, I haven't considered this before, so bear with me. I'm, I'm walking without a net here. It used to be, I would argue, that, that we got off, for lack of a better term, on voyeurism because we knew we shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> I, I live in a New York apartment in a, in a brownstone, and I'm looking, I'm looking through my window right now, Uma. This is, this is the window besides which I, I, beside which I wrote the book, and uh, my neighbors never, ever, ever, ever shut their blinds, which is very typical in New York City. And uh, I, I do get a little... <laughs> a little shudder, a little free song of thrill watching them because I'm not supposed to be doing that. That's an invasion of their privacy. So I think, I think that's been the case for some time. Beyond that, though, and I say this as someone who was inducted into social media fairly recently at the behest of my <laughs> marketing team. I wasn't even on Facebook before. Uh, we are actually encouraged to spy on others. Twitter feeds hosted by celebrities or operated by others who take quote unquote, candid selfies of themselves are inviting us in. These individuals, although they're really posturing, want to want to present us with some version of their lives. They are encouraging us to sneak a peek. And rather than slaking our thirst for for, for that kind of uh, attention, it, it seems to be encouraging it. We seem to be more and more interested in what other people are doing uh, in their private time. And it inspires us to do the same. For better or for yes, worse. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yep. Yeah, man. Now that I've joined Twitter, I, you know, I would, I would read it. And these were comments from my friends, and I'd think I, I'm, I'm not especially interested in what you're listening to on the radio right now. <laughs> and yet, part of me thought, well, I want to tell everyone what I'm listening to. It's, uh, it's contagious. It is it's absolutely contagious. Um, <laughs> um, hey, AJ, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, all the best for the book. It comes out January 2nd, am I right? That's correct, in the U.S. and throughout the rest of the world as, as the year grinds on. Fantastic. You know, let me tell you this. I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, but it's got one of the best advanced reader copies I've ever received in a long time. Oh, the publisher did a knockout job with that. Doesn't oh. it look great? I'm so glad you think so. I nah, love it. It comes in an old film canister. Fantastic. It's great. I know. That was so <laughs> inspired. That was all they're doing. I'm very lucky to be with them. <laughs> uh, AJ, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Uma. I really appreciate your time. That was AJ Finn. If you're a fan of thrillers, if you're a fan of Hitchcock and Noah, or if you're just a fan of good, pacey writing, I'd highly recommend The Woman in the Window. Check it out and let me know what you think. You can tweet me on at Uma Pagan. You're listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.